Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, as the title suggests, my guest reveals the five things from their life, four they love and one they loathe, that they would choose to put in a time capsule. Obviously. My guest in this episode is Adam White. Now, all of my guests so far on My Time Capsule have been what some might call famous, to a greater or lesser extent. And I'm sure if you listen to all the episodes we've made, you would come across people you'd never heard of, but hopefully you'd still listen because you like the podcast and you would still enjoy yourself. Now, Adam is the first guest I've had that almost everyone has not heard of. So you're going to have to trust me on this when I tell you that you will definitely enjoy listening to him. Adam used to be an actor. In fact, as you'll discover in this podcast, he was very successful and he had his own shows. He also made hundreds of TV adverts during that time. But fame is a fickle thing. And Adam wisely, or possibly widely, left it behind, like most sensible people do. His life was fairly extraordinary up to that point, but it has got a lot more extraordinary, as you're about to find out as we listen to the gorgeous Adam White tell us the things he'd place in a time capsule. Have fun. Adam White, how lovely to have you here. And you may wonder why I've asked you to do this, because I know you immediately said, why would you ask me? I'm I'm not famous. Bewildered. But you do have probably the most full life I've ever come across, and I think people would be interested to hear about it through what you put into the time capsule. Okay, well, uh, okay. Good luck. <laughs> time be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. So how do you want to do this? Do you want to do it chronologically? Well, I think it's sort of easier, isn't it? Because my first item is so much an intrinsic part of me, mm. uh, and that is an illuminated Santa face. I guess it's about sort of two foot big, and but huge and very jolly. But my mother used to put in the window of her kitchen... <laughs> for the people on the buses. Oh, so people on the buses, when they went past, would have something joyful to look at. And this is like 1957, where it was quite unusual to have side to face. But as a result of that, though, I think I've always loved Christmas. And Christmas is such an important time of year for me. Well, I mean, you remember some of the Christmases I you've do. been in, in the house. On many occasions. You used to own a flat that overlooked... Hammersmith Bridge, and it looked like Harrods from the outside. It was a Harrods Monkey, but inside, uh, much my mother's surprise, because even though she was inculcated me with this lovely joy of Christmas, she couldn't quite understand why I put a hole in the wall between my dining room and my sitting room, which had to be there to allow the Christmas train. (laughs) 
<laughs> to that's, go. You don't think that's slightly extreme? No. No. You, your life is full of extremes. But how it? else would the jewels and the presents get from the sitting room to the dining True. room? True. Poor Santa. <laughs> Round the two trees, or sometimes <laughs> in later life, I think there were three or four or five trees. Yes. But, but on the balcony, you used to have three or four. Yeah, exactly. They? All lit up. But your kids used to come. And yes, I've been to your house many occasions, and in fact... You are known in our family as Mr Christmas. <laughs> What's so weird about that is that um, then Christmas became really a, quite an important part of my life. And I was doing a pantomime in Copenhagen and I saw a Christmas tree brooch in a shop there. A little tiny thing about sort of two inches um, big. And I thought, well, that's pretty. It glitters and, you know, gay man glittery thing in a shop. <laughs> I thought that would do. Uh, and so I bought a Christmas tree brooch. And then next year I went back and there were three or four in the same shop. So I bought three or four. And do you know that started one of the more eccentric things uh, that have taken up my life? And now I actually have the Guinness World Record for the world's largest collection of Christmas tree brooches. (laughs) (laughs) And I have six and a half thousand brooches. Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. And they're in huge drawers. And I don't know what I'm... (laughs) No idea where it's going. And I don't know, again, whether there's a gay cliche going on. You know, strong, dominant mother, uh, full of love, full of family. Uh, and my father was so good-natured and so hard-working and such a decent man. But he somehow didn't feature in quite the same way that our mother, who just bestrides the family like a colossus. And there she is now at 97, nearly 98, and she's still this mater familias who holds the whole thing together. And she has these great big family get-togethers uh, in Bogner, which is where she lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she has been an extraordinary creature who, um, and I think this is something that is that can-do attitude. Mm. And I know that public school was really good for me. Uh, and again, I'm slightly ashamed that, you know, I had this privilege of going to public school because it was just astounding that a combination of that and my mother saying you can do whatever you want you just have to do it and be there uh gave me this insane confidence i could do anything whatever i put my mind to i could do and you know this curious thing is and i don't know whether it's because i know my boundaries or not but i have been able to do whatever i put my mind to probably i choose wisely <laughs> well, also things that interest you. That I love, love passions. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm a lucky bitch. And I know that I am a lucky bitch because I've actually been able to do all the jobs that I've ever wanted. I've never felt, oh, I've got to go to work. Yeah. And God, that's an amazing gift. And I now feel a bit smug <laughs> <laughs> and sound smug. And I apologise for that. No, I think actually it's important for people whose lives have been so beautifully ordered and chaotic, but yeah. really rewarding to let other people know that it can be done. I don't know what the secret is, though, Mike, you see. Um, I don't know. I have no answers. I only have my own experience. Well, maybe, as you say, that thing of being told as a young person, don't hold yourself back. Yeah. Just go for it. If you want to do something or you find you, you have a passion for something, follow it. Yeah. I guess so. But you can't always afford to do that, can you? No. And that's the thing. And I guess, again, my sort of a secure middle-class background of having two parents that were financially stable and secure gave me, again, an opportunity that so many other people don't have. Yes. Yes, that's very true. You're not going to say to somebody on a rubbish dump in India, oh, for goodness sake, just go and do what you, you have a passion for. No. Yeah, no, you're not going to do No, that. which is why we are the fantastically privileged people. We, as in this time and a place, us lucky few, yeah. we live a life that the yeah. emperors would have been jealous of. And I think that's why when we get on to my last item, I'm determined to put something back. Yes. So... You went to school and then you came out of school and you decided you were going to be what? Well, I I didn't really decide anything at all. And actually, this is where I want to put the thing that I hate most, which is a vial of desert sand. And I want to put that in this time capsule and never see the desert ever again. (laughs) And that was, um, yeah, I got a peculiar job where I was the creative director of a theme park in Dubai. $850 million theme park that was my budget the theme park never got made we spent all the money but it never got made Did you uh, spend it on parties yeah 
there's quite, quite a lot of parties, mm. but also there was a lot of land which obviously had to be acquired. Then we started building, and it's like about eighty five percent finished. And it was like Epcot. It was um, the, all the, the continents of the world. So we had Europe next to Africa, next to Asia, next to Florida, all round in this giant thing round a lake. And my idea was just populate it with shows. And I booked 30,000 shows <laughs> for the first year. 30,000 shows oh were booked and in place, ready to go for the first year. And then the whole Dubai crash happened. So the whole thing just imploded. Uh, they were scrabbling around for money. So I devised a sort of alternative theme park, a temporary one alongside it. And as part of that, I bought Guinness World Records as an intellectual property for the Middle East with their money yeah. and then set up a, a record-breaking section within the theme park where members of the public could come in, have a go at a record and actually walk away with an actual Guinness World Record. So it's really brilliant. It was so it's a brilliant. Idea. It was fab. So for, for and there were things that families could do and kids could do. So there's dressing Barbie. There's a Guinness World Record for the fastest time to dress Barbie. You'd have a go. Wouldn't of you? course you would. And what's great is that little girls, you see, with their nimble fingers, or little boys with nimble fingers, are much better than their banana-fingered mother and father. Yes. And it's a whole family thing. It was fabulous. And it, what was so brilliant? Because yeah, having done this in Dubai, then Guinness World Records then employed me uh, as the Dubai crash happened and said will you come because it it was really successful come to England and head up our sort of commercial division within Guinness World Records and so I was head of the well creative director of all these sort of crazy things and we went to Japan and I went on this fabulous world trip paid for by them to go to Hong Kong and and just looking at theme parks it's a dream trip (laughs) (laughs) I spent four months just going around theme parks making notes and then coming up with ideas for Guinness World Records we did actually go into Butlins, and we had a hilarious thing in there. One of the best records was the fastest time to make a set of bunk beds with all the bed clothing, and it was for a family of four. So the Guinness World Record is faster time to make bunk beds, family of four. <laughs> what is it? Do you remember? Oh, I have no idea. But, I mean, some of the records were crazy. I went out to um, to Thailand, and, oh, holy moly, uh, it was the world's longest karaoke marathon, yeah. and they had to sing continuously how long would you think uh, they would do that? Is it a team Just of six? one person or team a team? Um, 47 hours. 24 days. No. 24 <laughs> days. 24 days. Imagine. Imagine. And they just carried on singing and then they'd sleep a bit and then they did. The other one that I really loved doing was a woman <laughs> in a shopping centre uh, who uh, had lived in a box with 6,000 scorpions for two <laughs> weeks. <laughs> she, was, she had a little camp bed in her glass box in the middle of the shopping centre as so we walked past and there were 6,000 scorpions in the box with her. And she... <laughs> I've got an idea. I'm slightly bored today. What should I do? I know. Well, she was a scorpion wrangler was her job. And so she would, like, wrangle scorpions for Regis of the Lost Ark or those sort of films where you need a lot of scorpions. In fact, she knew that scorpions, to a large extent, were just going to leave you alone. Well, yeah. I mean, she got... I think she got stung about six or seven times, but she was utterly immune to scorpion stings. Uh, And she would supply scorpions at a dollar for ten scorpions. (laughs) (laughs) For a film. Now, so I'm slightly struggling to find yeah. why you want to put a, a file of sand into the time capsule. Well, because also, uh, right, I'm gay, and Dubai and gay just doesn't mix. And uh, I mean, the whole thing—it it was just a hideous experience from the point of view of—and I didn't hide anything. But on the other hand, I couldn't actually be myself. You know, you know I could shriek a bit, but not. <laughs> I normally would. But it was just so oppressive. And also, I think also just the hierarchy I found really oppressive Mm. of um, obviously the Arabs' top dogs and then would come English-German, then would come French-Italian-Spanish and the rest of Europe and Australian and New Zealand. Then below that would be, say, East Europeans. And then by the end of it, uh, you had all the people who were working their socks off 
who were just the lowest of the low and treated like shit. Yeah. And I think it was so people from Africa, people yeah. from uh, the Indian, the, yeah, the continent. Philippines, and and it was horrible. And I was really pleased that in my theme park, I was able to implement like humane as much as they could be uh, working conditions yes. with proper breaks. And these people were kind of in camps, being bussed in and out. And we put an end to a lot of that for the people working in my theme park, mm. though sadly it happened all around me. I was working with the best team I've ever worked with anywhere in the world because mm. uh, they came from absolutely everywhere and a lot of them with big theme park backgrounds. So, I mean, what I bought was a sort of eccentric point of view and they had hard, fast theme park knowledge. Yes. So I could book my 30,000 shows and they merely had to expedite my <laughs> insanity. Crazy ideas. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that does actually into my next item, which is the Huntsham Court Bar Book. Ah, I know, I know what that is, but you're going to have to explain that. Well, I'd rather you explain Huntsham Court. Oh, we found this very lovely large house down in Devon with loads of rooms. You get an enormous crowd of people there. 32 people you could accommodate. You in the Mozart room or, yes. the, or the, the Haydn. Beethoven and Haydn yes. and Rossini. And, and they had a bar yeah. which was permanently open and unstaffed. Yeah. So it was your job to go into the bar, and if you had a drink, you wrote it in the book. So yeah. it was a trust bar. Yeah. It was fantastic. And I think that really sums up, which is why it's in the time capsule, it sums up a whole area of my life that was just joyful without boundaries, just like Huncham, without boundaries and without rules, where we were performers. We came out of university. We went to Edinburgh. We did these shows. We wrote. We did whatever we wanted. Nothing seemed to constrain us. And again, with the arrogance of youth, we just went out there and did it. And we did the Edinburgh show. Then we thought, well, why don't we take this to the West End? And then we suddenly do a little West End run with some really (laughs) crap review that I've shared and Morley said about ours, Hammer Longer Yorick, he said, this appalling amateur rubbish is no excuse for extracting folding money from the people walking down St Martin's Lane. <laughs> yeah, but we did it. They did. They did. They and they the paid and they was there and we had a ball. And it was just so weird because coming out of university and we looked to you guys, all the Oxbridge set, because we were coming out of UEA, University of East Anglia. Can it be oh, done from here? I know, is we felt so <laughs> utterly, utterly underpowered compared to you and Griff and Mel were out there. Rowan Atkinson was out yeah. there. Uh, everybody was just doing this great, great stuff. And there's this little group of us with Arthur Smith, me, Phil Nice, Maxine Oswald, Bab Sutton. And, and we just came at it. And I again, I think it's my mother again. You know, well, fuck it, we're not going to stop us. So we called ourselves, there's the Oxford Review Group, the Cambridge Review Group, the Oxford this, the Cambridge that. So we called ourselves the National Review Company. Yes just to try and trump all of these Oxbridge types. And you know, it sort of kind of worked. (laughs) And so what a lot of fun. And again, it was just this free time where anything could happen. And then as a result of that, you know, I went on to a a sort of TV career. Mm. Uh, Phil and Brian had their own TV career. And And you made more television commercials than almost anybody alive. <laughs> Do you know, I did. Yes. And what was really weird was, I, I don't know quite what happened. I was just flavour of the flavour for some reason. And I knew my goose was cooked when I was in my agent's office. Uh, he said, oh, yeah, no, Adam, he's sitting right in front of me. He's just here in front of me. He said, oh, oh, OK. Ah, OK. Yeah, 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 got that. Yep, OK. Mm-hmm. OK, bye. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what's the job? Yeah, he, he said, yeah, they want someone like Adam Wide, oh, but yeah. not Adam Wide. Uh, and I knew then that I was overexposed. But I'd kind of done rather too many. And they wanted someone cheaper. <laughs> but how bizarre was that? And Because I've only ever, you know, I don't see myself as anything extraordinary. And yet for some reason, it just all clicked together during the 80s. I've never earned more money in 1987. It was crazy. And then uh, Babs and I as we were doing Clarence and Joy Pickles and we were on the Noel Edmonds show and we did like, you know, 16 weeks with Noel Edmonds and we worked with everyone from Molly Sugden through Spike Milligan through and just all these great comedy people we were working with on a weekly basis and Noel. And it was kind of nice because when I started, my very first job ever, ever, ever in showbiz was uh, for the good old days. 
And I went to Norway with Leonard Sachs. And it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> it was utter bliss. Through the good old days, I worked with Arthur Askey. Uh, I worked with Jimmy Edwards. I worked with Joyce Grenfell. I worked with Tommy Trinder. Wow. And Tommy Trinder was, you know, in his time, the highest paid entertainer in Britain. And there's me on a pill with Tommy Trinder doing When Father Papered the Parlour and singing in Norwegian, which I... <laughs> Well, you see, that was quite a good wheeze because when we went to Norway with Leonard, um, the good old days is the top-rated light entertainment show in Norway. It was absolutely, <laughs> there was none, no bigger, no better. Uh, so we went to Norway, and I'd done Norwegian at university for some strange thing. But anyway, I did. My first boyfriend was Norwegian, so I thought this is a soft option to do Norwegian. And so I learnt when Father papered the parlour in Norwegian to wow the audience, because I knew that would bring the house down, which is da far tapetseta salongen. You don't remember slapping it here, slapping it yeah, there? Yes, slink today, have a slink today, that was tough, that was a little world. Mamba fast is dark, bana valid for some good, but man had already said, and she had a family to some clister of her. I can't possibly tell you if you're right or wrong. No, well, that's how it went. And they had me, Violetta went on first, who played the original Hortense in The Boy, friend so she was this very old fabulous french woman who was gorgeous with stories about sandy wilson julie andrews the whole boyfriend i mean that again another fabulous person she went on first we did an opening shana which we were all pierros scene with big bobbles down the front and a sort of pointy hat with a big black pom-pom on the front so we started off as pierros then violetta went on then i came on next doing my father back to the parlor but what they hadn't anticipated was my secret weapon with the Norwegian verse, yes. which actually stopped the show. I should imagine And so. then they had to move me to close the first half because you couldn't really follow my no. <laughs> Norwegian. And everybody hated me because it's my first ever job. I'd never actually had a professional job ever before. And suddenly I'm having to close the first half. It's <laughs> <laughs> totally in real life. <laughs> exactly. And in a way, I didn't go much further than Noel Edmonds. So Huntsham Court and the bar Huntsham Court, yes. that, that for you, that sort of encapsulates that whole period, was it? Absolutely. And this whole period of can-do, performance, no plan. I had no plan for my life at all, at all, at all. And it just, whenever I got a gig, I'd say, yes, I'll do it. Mm. That whole thing of uh, Huntsham was exactly like that. Yeah. I remember being involved in a singing competition with the people who now sing on Strictly Come Dancing, really yeah. top session singers. Yeah when we had to have a Tom Jones competition. <laughs> and, of course, all these fantastic singers could sing brilliantly like Tom Jones. Lance Ellington was able to sing oh, yeah, exactly yeah. like Tom Jones. Yeah. But I won the competition by singing uh, Run, Rabbit, Run and doing lots of physical actions <laughs> to it. Uh, and I think it was the physical actions. Of I one. think that's our secret weapon, no shame. Yeah. No pride, no shame. In the end, you can beat them by not being as good but being more daring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's still by very good state. And I think in the commercials, again, that was why I got so many commercials. No pride, no shame. Have a go. Yeah. Fart and fall over. Yes. I, I did. I, that bar, that bar, the bar tab, which was always enormous, is going to go straight into the tab. Isn't that amazing? That yes. You just write in a book and that's it and they accept it. And everybody did it honestly as yeah. a result. Yeah. So, well, and actually, see, that brought me into another one of my items to put in the time capsule. Yes. And that is my David Nixon magic set. How utterly brilliant. And, in fact, I stole it off my brother. My brother Marcus was given it. How old were you? Seven or eight, I would think. Mm -hmm. And I've been really into Pelham puppets for most <laughs> my childhood and I had string puppets and, and I was endlessly doing shows with string puppets and and I charged all the neighbours to come in sort of hate me <laughs> it might even have been a far thing but to come and watch me do endless puppet shows and Pinky and Perky were on TV so there was quite a lot of uh, a sort of precedent for puppets just miming to terrible records Bill and Ben as well yeah. <laughs> of course yeah, yeah so I used to do a lot of puppets puppet work with records going on the 78 record player as well holy moly that takes me back anyway so i was given the magic set and suddenly i now wanted to be out in front 
entertaining rather than behind a curtain manipulating puppets mm. i wanted myself to be out front there and my ego came to the fore suddenly and it was so brilliant because it wasn't a little wanky set that was all full of plastic david nixon actually created a whole magic show with really decent proper tricks well, so have you followed each yes, one if you could do yes, an entire performance? there was a whole show uh, and they were quite it was quite big and quite proppy and then he also gave you tricks that you could do with the household objects so in fact there was a good solid 20 minutes worth of a performance if you got it all together Brilliant. that's mm. worth more than a farthing yeah <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, I bet it was. It's, I can see Dubai coming on the horizon. <laughs> well, that was kind of the point. And so it imbued in me this thing of magic being magical and uh, the fact you could feed people's imagination, which I loved, and then you could amaze, and that was good for the ego because they'd say, oh, my gosh, I'm very clever. And so my first theatre job was good old days, but my first TV job, proper one on my own, was a whole series called Illusions at Thames TV in which I was the magician. And it was utterly brilliant. And it was a, a magic museum who had all these fantastic props from Servet Leroy, who was a Belgian magician, through Louis Davenport, who was an English magician, through very famous magicians of history. And I was actually recreating their routines with, with the, the actual equipment that they used. Wow. It was utterly brilliant. And the director was such a delight. She had this extraordinary, batty, delightful, just do again, do what you want sort of attitude to directing. Mm. So I was kind of, again, I was king of my own castle, doing my own show called Illusions, in which I was the illusionist. And she gave me carte blanche to just be what I wanted. So why do you think people have constantly trusted you to get things right? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe it's because you do. It's well, I, I can't answer that, but I mean, I, I suppose that that must be the case. Otherwise, you look I would back through the history of your life, yeah, and constantly you've got things right. Well, do you know that's very sweet of you to say, but to some extent that must be true because yeah, she saw this young, you know, review actor come in front of her who could do a bit of magic, but then she just gave me this whole thing to do. And Jeff Sachs did the same, again, very lovely director, yeah. uh, with a kids' TV show on GMTV. Roland Rat was on holiday <laughs> for the summer. He had the summer off. Yeah. And they had, I think it was eight weeks or ten weeks to film. Could have been um, a big mistake. He I know. Could, he could have stayed on holiday. <laughs> Yeah, so they anyway, they gave me a, a kids' programme called Splat on a Saturday morning. I'm ridiculous. And it was just me just puffing around <laughs> and linking lots of things that actually, you know, were parts of the programme. Yes. But is it, I don't know, is it shit or cream that rises to the top? I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. So you're a member of the Magic Circle? Yes, a member of Magic. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, All uh, because of... David Nixon. All because of David Nixon's magic set. And the stolen box of magic. Uh, yeah, from my brother. But he was a delightful man. And uh, I remember watching him on television so so absolutely clearly, even though I was probably six, seven, eight at the yes. time. He was the first big television Magician. magic star, wasn't he? Well, I think that's a beautiful thing to put in there because it, it opens up a whole area of your life. Yeah. And in many ways, I would imagine that thing of suddenly performing something competently in front of people and working at it and getting yeah. really good at it. So you talk of your life as if it's an accident. But in but fact, whenever, you, well, but whenever you've been asked to do something, you put such a lot of work into it and such a lot of preparation and care that by the time you get to do it, you're really good at it. I don't know. I'm 150% of everything I do, yeah. But if I've you commit to, to it, party, you do it. I've never been to a party or house that wasn't incredibly well prepared. <laughs> yeah. They, when you knew when entertainment was going to happen and you, yeah. you know, you'd got the sort of drinks that everybody would like and there was food and sweets and, you're, and they're always sweet. catered for children. There's always... Yeah, well, you're right. Planning is good. Yeah, and I do plan. Possibly because I, I don't want to fail and I fear failure. So I think that planning and looking at all the eventualities is actually an antidote to failing. So I guess that's why I do it. Mm. Yeah, don't know. That's interesting. Don't know. No, it works. <laughs> it does. It does. It yeah. does. So where are we? We've put your mother's lovely Santa face 
in there. Yeah. We've also put in David Nixon's magic books. We put the, the vial tab, yeah, the hunch of yeah. and we've put a file of sand exactly. in there from Dubai, which you know. So we've basically really got one thing left to put into the top. Oh, holy fuck. There you are. I told you it was worth listening, didn't I? Anyway, we have to take a short break here for some adverts, but we'll be back in a minute. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Now let's get straight back to the lovely Adam Wide and find out if his life can get any more amazing. Do you know, I suspect it can. Well, there's so many because my performing side, uh, that goes on performing and I've kind of stopped that now. But as a parallel career to that, I had a a producing directing role where I worked for a a conference production company for a long, 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 long time. And it was an extraordinary life. And we go to big conferences in Monte Carlo with nine sets of carousel projectors all going clunk, click. And then that went into conference production and trade shows and product launches and all that. And, that was, again, a really funny time. I remember once, uh, for probably my most favourite was for Philips. They were releasing um, video discs. Oh, I mean, holy moly, how long ago oh. is that? And they want to say they're now ready to all the retailers and they invited squillions of retailers to Monte Carlo. And so we had Russell Harty out front doing the presenting. And then the back of the set was just a wall of Philips video disc boxes. And as the show finished, the whole wall lifted up and came towards the retailers as if to say they're ready. And I'd had the Coventry Climax forklift trucked demonstration team (laughs) (laughs) who then did a forklift ballet who knew they existed (laughs) (laughs) and I did a forklift truck ballet with all of these boxes and they were going up and down on the fronts of the trucks and the trucks were making patterns and I had a mirror come down from the ceiling like Busby Barclay so you could could see the patterns it was hilarious and then started my own company called Open Wide and Open Wide International Adam Wide of Open Wide hello Adam Wide Open Wide And we provided entertainment to all the cruise ships all around the world. We did cruise ships, we did resorts, we did hotels. And what was amazing was that I came out, having come out of stand-up in the alternative circuit, it was all non-sexist, non-racist, and we had a, a contract which was absolutely, it was really hard on jokes that had to conform to these things. Yes. The only person who didn't sign was Freddie Parrotface Davis, who refused. I'm not doing (laughs) non-sexist jokes. My entire act has gone. Exactly. What about the parrot? (laughs) 
So, so he didn't sign. But people like Bradley Walsh and Lee Evans and all sorts of really fabulous comedians. I got onto a circuit for Thompson. And uh, what by sheer fluke happened that actually my good heart and my, and my my socialist tendencies coming out actually turned out to be box office because women are the people that book holidays yeah. traditionally. And suddenly Thompson found that women were rebooking in massive numbers the holidays in which I had my entertainment running. And so as a result of that, really, as a result of just good intentions, suddenly I had an empire and, and Open Wide International ended up with like 45 permanent employees, about 500 temporary employees every summer. And it was really lovely that actually from a position of political, you know, zeal came financial security. But often if you follow the route of uh, what you believe is right, yeah. it turns out that quite a lot of other people agree with you. Yeah. In a way, that's what happened was that comedy shifted to observational comedy yeah. rather than gags. And it was that was really good, and, and therefore, as a result of open wide, I then again had a much broader canvas on which to paint. And in fact, the Royal Armouries came to us. So the, it was, this is really bizarre. So the Royal Armouries, Tony Blair had a really good socialist principle: all museums should be free. Great idea, because they should. Mm-hmm. But it meant that all the scholarship behind the museums, all the backroom boys and the scholars and the curators. Now, haven't how do they get paid? Yes, it could be free as long as you continue the funding. Exactly, yes. uh, which didn't happen. No. So the Royal Armouries were were one of several museums or musea who came to us, and they wanted to make money doing presentations, shows. So we came up obviously with jousting championships on the one hand. Obviously, <laughs> oh, what fun was that? There wasn't any codification for jousting in Britain or even the world. So actually I'm part of, and I'm really pleased that I am, the codification of the National Jousting Championships <laughs> and the rules of jousting by which jousting can be universal all over the world. And I had a hand in that, so that's nice. You are definitely answering the question, why have you asked me to do this? Because for any man who say so you recodified jousting, yeah. uh, you have a Guinness Book of Records <laughs> record, yeah. which, and you basically provided entertainment for thousands of performers yeah. from the mid-90s until now. And actually we redefined it, and that's again what I'm really quite quite proud of, because I just know that the whole of the cruise industry actually had to change as a result of what I was doing on Air Tours cruise ships first, then Thompson Cruise or second, and that filtered out through the whole of the cruise industry, and I love that. Yes. And did you write all the shows? Uh, well, I would conceive them, and then someone else would write them. Just too I'm many. Not to so do stupid, yeah. yeah. Well, we were writing 20 shows a year. Wow. So that is quite a lot. So I'd come up with an idea and figure it out, and people cleverer than I would then make them work. But I'm going back to the Royal Armouries. One thing that the bane of my life was the historical accuracy. <laughs> and I think this is something that I would put in the time capsule just because it amuses me, which is a pair of Roman Caligae, <laughs> which are the strappy-up shoes that, that Roman gladiators wear. We all knew that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't talk down to us, Adam. Caligae. I've got several upstairs in my bedroom. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm trying to put on the jousting, uh, not jousting, the, the gladiator things and chariot races and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And actually we got Tony Smart, who was brilliant, from Billy Smart Circus. His son, Tony Smart, would supply chariots for chariot racing. So working with him and with gladiators and so on. But the Royal Armouries were saying, but you have to have Caligai, which costs like 500 quid a pair. (laughs) So out of your 20 grand budget or 30 grand budget, suddenly 20 grand is just on 20 (laughs) pairs or 30 pairs of Caligai. Did they insist on you killing people at the end of it? No, we <laughs> And lions... We want authenticity. <laughs> well, lions are hard to come by. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, so, uh, the Caligai were a pain. But um, moving on, though, because there is one more item that I'm really quite keen to, to have. Well, OK, I'm happy to hear what your last item is. Um, and that is a Berlin Bruiser rugby ball. Ah, 
The Berlin Bruisers is a game-inclusive rugby team that I founded in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And after all of this madness was over, I, I thought, well, Berlin's great. What did I go through there? It's a nice place to live. Uh, and so I moved to Berlin and started the game-inclusive rugby team. And little did I know that... Um, as again, Hang on a minute, just yeah. uh, you rather rushed over there. Uh, you moved to Berlin. Well, yeah. none of us were surprised because yeah. that's the sort of thing that you did. But you started the gay and inclusive rugby team yes. in Berlin. Yes. Right. Yeah, well, with another bloke who said, what about it? Do you think this is a good idea? I said, absolutely, let's do it. And so we, we formed the team. Uh, we started training. And actually, he was his own undoing that his partner of 17 years then ran off with the fly half. So <laughs> really terrible Take it luck. Quickly. That was really, really bad luck. So already I've got an issue. Uh, he obviously doesn't want to be in the team anymore, and suddenly I've inherited the whole of the Berlin Bruisers. So the Berlin Bruisers were the first completely gay rugby, gay team. and inclusive. So the whole idea was to have a safe space for people who perhaps didn't feel confident in a, in a straight team. And there's quite a lot of homophobia all over the world. Yes, uh, but rug- particularly in sport. Well, particularly in sport, though not necessarily rugby. I think it's much worse in football than it is in rugby. Mm. But there is some. And also kids who grew up in school always being the last person picked for sports and always feeling ostracised or, or not feeling safe in a sporting environment. Yes. Uh, we gave them a safe haven, somewhere that they could come and just be themselves, not worry about being judged. No. And for trans players as well, and we have, uh, I think there's four in the team now, trans female to male players. And I think just by not judging and by being there, we're a very visible sign to the world outside as well that gay doesn't mean lip-wristed, Larry Grayson's. It doesn't mean that you you can't be fulfilled in in really every, every yeah. part of your life. And playing sport is one of them. And why should it be an issue? And yet it sometimes can be. It can be. And as we know, that is often cruelly the taunt that will come from children. Yeah, is that if you're the last to be picked, it's because you're gay. Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, and it's it's thrown at them as an insult. Yeah. It is. Um, well, suicide, suicide rates are horrific amongst gay, yes. even higher amongst trans. Mm. And we actually, once the team was established, I set up a, a school's outreach programme. So we went into schools, we did an hour of rugby, then we did an hour of talking about gender and gender identity. And what a great school to allow us to do that. And it was just great talking to kids and letting them be themselves without the teachers present mm. uh, and talk about, gender and sexuality, but really gender was what it was mainly about, and giving them permission to be who they wanted to be. Amazing country, Germany. Yes. Oh, God. It, but, and you think that only not that long ago, Margaret Thatcher was, was making that illegal in this country to, well, what they said was to promote homosexuality, yeah. they said. Well, the good thing that came out of it was that, well, there's several things. I'm now the vice president of International Gay Rugby, which is the parent organisation for all of the gay and inclusive rugby teams, <laughs> which are 100 plus. So there are 100 plus rugby teams all around the world for gay and inclusive players. And that schools programme is now being replicated and it's been cut and pasted and replicated all around the globe for anybody who wants it. So that's a brilliant thing to come it out It is a of brilliant it. thing. Um, and, and something to be really proud of, I think. Well... I felt it needed to be done. So in a way, I take less pride in that than I do some of my performing things because it just had to happen. Yeah. Uh, and we also founded a tournament in Berlin called the Bashabout, the Berlin Bashabout, where we invite players from all over Europe to come to Berlin, take part in the barbarian tournament. So they come as individuals and then we make teams out of the individuals. So there's six teams made or eight teams, depending on how many turn up, and they all play each other. And each one has its own specific social focus. So the first one was about stigmatisation in sport, mm. uh, specifically HIV and AIDS. And again, for me, this is very potent because I'm myself HIV positive. Mm. Uh, I've had two partners die of HIV and AIDS mm. actually on me in my arms. Lord. So uh, it, it's quite important, yeah. just from a personal viewpoint, that AIDS is not the stigma that it once was. No. And you've been HIV positive for... For 20 years, 30 20 years. years. Yeah. Hang on. About, well, it's a long it? time. I know it's a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, for 25 years. 
Yes. And I'm on the pills, and that works fine. So, And then the second bash about was about persecution in the Middle East, Far East. We had people from Syria come over talking about their experience of being gay. And then the third one was about, again, gender. And we played, it was so brilliant, we played co-ed rugby. Men and women alongside each other playing in the same team. And we had so much resistance to that mainly from the men, yes. saying, oh, well, I don't want to hurt a woman. Oh, mm. get out of here. What are you talking about? If they want to play and they're rough and tough, and some of them are really rough and tough, <laughs> uh, then you better watch out, Buster, because it's happening. And that, again, was really fabulous. But the good thing about our relationship with World Rugby is that also International Gay Rugby, IGR, have completely rewritten trans definitions and transgender rules for rugby. Mm. And World Rugby waiting for the IOC to make their definition of trans. And we think, why? You know, look, we've done it. It's here. Here it goes. And, and to their credit, it. they did. Oh, brilliant. So actually, again, we have had a first-hand influence on writing the rules of engagement for transgender players in rugby. That's the cool. jousting. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> that and get jousting. The Amazing thing about you, Adam, is you never sort of rest on your laurels, as it were. Whenever you go somewhere new, you immediately get involved in in these sort of things. Because I know that recently you bought a place in Hastings. Yeah, I did. And I now leave you with this stick of rock, (laughs) which I hand across to you. And here it is, a stick of Hastings of Bognor Rock. Lovely. Which has my name and that of my husband, my new husband, Andrew, right the way through it. So you can have a bite of Adam. (laughs) (laughs) As you work your way down it. Only the first person to take both of them, <laughs> as it were, at the same time. Adam and Andrew in every bite. And, <laughs> and yeah, I just moved to Hastings. I love it there. Uh, got a new husband. I got involved with Saving the Pier, which was going well, being sold out of public hands into private hands. Yes. And we didn't succeed there. But I'm now involved with a really brilliant thing, that we just purchased the Observer Building, which is a great big derelict building that's been sitting there for 25 years, not being used. And we're converting that into social housing on one floor, start-up business pods on a second floor. Then there's a big space for whatever flexible space to be used for the community. And then downstairs is sort of money-making. Uh, there'll be a, a gym or some CrossFit or tra-la-la, a microbrewery. And that's just one building out of a whole thing called the Hastings Commons, which is about eight or nine buildings, which are all interlinked uh, emotionally and for the community. And between them, we've got this thing, the um, Hastings Action Zone, Heritage Action Zone going which is kind of across the whole of this area to regenerate. Hastings has got the most ghastly poverty levels, Mm. uh, drug addiction problems, homelessness. Mm -hmm. It's a horribly hostile place whilst being a beautiful seaside resort. Yes. There you are, you see. If I'd done half the things you've done in your life, if I manage to do that many by the end of my life, I will be very pleased with myself. So I've got I, lots to come, Mike. There's still lots uh, to go. Well, gee, I'm a bit tired. <laughs> I just can sit down and have a cup of tea. Whereas you'll find something else to do. Yeah. Which is why I asked you to do this, because I think just hearing such a fantastically full mm. and exciting life inspires people. It inspires me. It makes me want to get up and do more all the time. So it's been it's been lovely to talk to you about the things. You too, you lovely fella. This well, is such pleasure. I will remind you though of the one story <laughs> that you said you were you oh I must talk about that. And I'm going to say the words <laughs> Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, you see, I was yeah, you're right. Uh well, he is my most famous one night stand. <laughs> and, yeah, Did I, you say the same about you? I, I, I don't think so. No. It was very funny. Yeah, I, I mean yes, I've had Two celebrity suitors. One was Kenny Everett, who was really lovely, and uh, but I, I didn't f- fall prey to his advances. But Freddie, what a lovely, lovely, lovely man. Mm. And I was in the Copacabana, which was a, a gay bar in Ells Court, and there's this chap, and I didn't recognise him at all. I had no idea. I just thought he was quite handsome, charismatic, yes. had a twinkle, uh, and he was standing across the... And there was kind of no-one in there. It was, I think, a Tuesday evening or something. Uh, I know this, he was with a big burly bloke who came over and said, oh, uh, Freddie fancies you. I said, well, he's, you know, he's only over there and I'm here. It's not very far to walk, is it? 
So he went back. I also said, Freddie, he says he's just over there. So he came over, you know, smiling and chuckling. I had not a clue who he was, not a hint of an idea who he was. Now, you were not interested in that sort of music, were you? No, not at all. I was 1940s dance band. Yes. You know, I didn't know who this <laughs> chap was. I hadn't got a clue. Yeah, if it was Al Jolson, <laughs> he would have been straight out <laughs> of my car. <laughs> exactly. So, um, anyway, uh, push comes to shove and we go back to his place. Uh, do you know what was amazing? Was I still didn't have a clue, and we were downstairs and we were talking, uh, and there's a Sotheby's catalogue for Lalique Glass on his downstairs sort of den coffee table. And the fact that we'd gone down outside the house, his posh house in Holland Park, and we'd gone not up the front door to the steps, we went round the side and down, and I thought, perhaps he works here. Perhaps uh, he's the chauffeur. Yeah. You know, what's going on? <laughs> And there's this big Lalique book on the coffee table. And I said, oh, I love Lalique. And I was looking, he said, really? Come with me. And he took me upstairs from the basement. And it was then, as we went up from the stairs, there were all these gold and platinum discs on the wall. saying queen, 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 queen. And then and some of them had pictures of him. And I went, oh, Oh, right. I I remember who you are now. Yes, well, sort of, but again, I had no idea how massive they were. And anyway, he took me up to the top of the stairs. He turned left. We went into a room and he flicked a switch and it was like being in a museum for Lalique. And there were cabinet upon cabinet of fabulous, fabulous glass. And he was super knowledgeable. And he took me around. We must have spent an hour in that room just looking at Lalique uh, before we did the deed. I mean, it's just fantastic. <laughs> um, anyway, the next morning he said, come out and we're filming at Pinewood. Come and, you know, it would be fabulous to have you out there. Uh, I said, well, no, I've got to go to work. He said, no, but we're doing this thing, Radio Gaga. It'd be fab if you were in the audience. It'd be brilliant. And now, of course, I'm going, no, that should have been me. No, I saw a wanker. Well, again, I had no idea how massive he was. And he gave me his phone number and I went to work and I said, oh, I had a funny night with this chap, Freddie Mercury. They went, what? You didn't watch? What? (laughs) (laughs) And and then I realised how massive he was. And by then I could never phone that number because suddenly it would look like I was craven. And I was then super embarrassed that I didn't know who he was or how massive he was. So I never, ever phoned that number. Who knows what might have happened? Well, I don't know, but at least you you come away from remembering him as being lovely. Fabulous. He was really fabulous. And the passion for that Lalique glass was just... That was inspiring. Yes. Oh, well, that's fabulous. That is fabulous. It is. As are you. (laughs) Adam, I'm going to seal up your time capsule with these wonderful memories and uh, thank you so much for letting us share them well thank you you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest adam wide who if you didn't know before you do now thank you for trusting me and listening i hope we didn't disappoint If you've enjoyed yourself, there are lots of other episodes to listen to, so why not subscribe on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. If you do subscribe, then please do rate the show and maybe leave a review. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for the latest news about My Time Capsule and you can download the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify if you search My Time Capsule Theme Tune. Yep, not the greatest title, I know. It's not all you need is love, is it? Or sweet Caroline. Yeah, but then it's also not the Shoop Shoop song or Agadoo, so we're happy with it. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, that's it from me. I'll be talking to someone else next time on My Time Capsule, so please do join us as I talk to somebody famous. Probably. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.